At First Commonwealth Bank, we understand that many of today's businesses are facing uncertain times. And that means there's no more important time for having the right financial partner behind you. A partner with the resources and experience to help take care of your business. An SBA preferred lender who can see what others may not and do what others cannot. If you're ready to talk with a financial partner who can help your business today and into the future, there's no better time to talk with us. First Commonwealth Bank, member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cassus Belli project. To get started, I'd like to thank Tobias from Sweden for being our first Patreon member. For those of you who want to contribute a little extra to the show or to help keep it going, that's a great way to do so. If you want to contribute or just a little inside peek or behind-the-scene look, you can go to patreon.com slash Podcasts. If you'd like a little bit extra material on the episode, you can go to casusbellypodcast.com slash worldwar2. Of course, all of you listening are already doing the best thing you can to support the show. And that's actually, well, listen. So thank you to all of you. In this episode, we continue the Battle of Guadalcanal, specifically the Battle of Bloody Ridge, as well as the First Battle of Savo Island and Torpedo Junction. So let's get started with episode 27, Sabres in the Sun. Ah, have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? Fleet withdrawing and the Marines isolated in the vicinity of Henderson Field, the immediate morale victory went to the Japanese. Through their domestic and English language propaganda channels, they boasted of sinking the American destroyers at the Battle of Savo Island and of the abandoned Marines now stranded on Guadalcanal. It didn't help matters stateside when the Navy was caught flat-footed by reporters when asked what had happened. With no real official word from the Navy, the story ran as the Japanese had described it in American newspapers. On Guadalcanal itself, the Marines weren't concerned with what was running in the newspapers, but rather with hunkering down and defending the perimeter. The 1st Marine Division would defend Henderson Field with a perimeter radius stretching about 3 kilometers. In open terrain, this may have been an easier task, but in the dense jungle of the Solomons, there was no way the Marines could cover all the necessary ground in a continuous defensive line. Between strong points, Roving patrols were sent out at regular intervals to detect any Japanese attempting to penetrate their perimeter. The Marines were not only responsible for the interior jungle perimeter, though. General Vandegrift also had them defending the shoreline from a Japanese counter-invasion. Despite not receiving all of their supplies, the Marines were not doomed to starve. The Japanese had abandoned their position so quickly upon the Marines' arrival that they had left their food and booze behind. This the men quickly seized and began to utilize. But to their dismay, the Japanese rations consisted mostly of worm-ridden paste that was supposed to be rice and sake, which would quickly become an acquired taste. By August 9th, 
The first Marine Division's second full day on the island, Japanese bombers were already hammering their positions with 500-pound bombs. Not only that, but the Tokyo Express, the Japanese cruisers and destroyers that regularly transported men and material, began shelling them nightly. Before long, this aerial and sea assault would be joined by attacks on land from Japanese infantry. Within three days, Henderson Field was open for business, but had not yet received its complement of aircraft. On August 12th, the first real contact with Japanese ground forces was made on the island. A Japanese sailor had been captured somewhere along the perimeter and brought to division intelligence. Here, he was interrogated, and after a few helpful swallows of brandy, offered up that the Japanese element to the west was starving and eager to surrender. The Marines' victorious mood caused them to take the story at face value. That day, the intelligence section and some scouts, led by the division intelligence officer, Lieutenant Colonel Gurtka, took a landing craft to the reported location of the Japanese unit and were promptly massacred. Rather than demoralized, starving men, they found Japanese soldiers dug in and machine guns pointed directly at their avenue of approach. They had been set up. Of the 25-man patrol, only three survived by jumping in the water and swimming back to friendly lines. Those that returned reported that they saw the Japanese sabers flashing in the sun as they raised them in the air to mutilate the bodies of the men who couldn't escape. Until this point, the Marines had mostly been in high spirits. Sure, they were in a hot, stinking jungle eating worm-infested rice thousands of miles from home, but that's what they had signed up for. After the massacre of the Gurtka patrol, however, the attitude of the individual fighting man towards the Japanese soured forever. Not only had they been lured in with false humanitarian mission, but the bodies of their fallen comrades were desecrated. The Marines had just learned a lesson that every other force that had faced the Japanese had learned in the most difficult way. This atrocity could not stand. From now on, the Japanese would receive as much mercy as they had shown the Gotka Patrol. From here on, the Marines would almost never take prisoners, except with the express purpose of extracting intelligence. There was never any decision from on high to accept no prisoners. Rather, it was company-level leadership, the captains, lieutenants, and sergeants, who actually engaged the enemy that determined that there was only one way to fight this kind of enemy, and it required unyielding ruthlessness. The Japanese were in no mood to allow the Americans their first foothold and immediately made preparations to dislodge them. The elite Ichiki detachment was pinned with this glorious task. Led by Colonel Kiyomo Ichiki, they were a band of 2,000 hand-picked veterans from the 28th Infantry Division who had fought against the Soviets in 1939 and the Chinese after that. They would have led the assault on Midway if Yamamoto's plans had succeeded, but were forced to withdraw in shame. Their shot at glory stolen from them, they were itching for another chance. Lieutenant General Hutake, the general responsible for the Solomons, would give them that chance. On August 16th, the Ichiki detachment boarded transports bound for Guadalcanal, and two days later, the first 900 of them landed 20 miles east of Henderson Field. Colonel Ichiki was chomping at the bit to face off against the Americans. Though only 900 strong, he was confident his men could take on the 2,000 or so Marines he believed to be on the island. This on its own is pretty absurd, but it's downright ludicrous considering there were five times that many Marines actually on the island. On August 19th, another American patrol encountered the Japanese, this time to the east of Henderson Field, in the area that the Ichiki detachment was preparing its offensive. Captain Charles Brush of the 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines, led his 80-man probing patrol out into the jungle and got into a heavy firefight that lasted about an hour. 
After routing the Japanese, his men searched the engagement area and found they had killed 30 Japanese for their three Marines lost. Not only that, but the dead Japanese were a trove of intelligence. A disproportionately large number of the dead were officers, and many of them carried sensitive papers describing Japanese plans. When the patrol returned, they informed division leadership. Though Vandegrift declined to maneuver on the gathering Japanese east of Henderson Field, he did strengthen that flank. That night, Marines would begin laying barbed wire, digging in extra gun emplacements, and staking out fields of fire along the Tanaru River, which marked their eastern frontier. August 20th would bring the first aircraft to Henderson Field, but also the first Japanese attempt to dislodge them. That night, the Achikis attacked. At 1.18 a.m. on August 21st, the Marines heard the shout of Banzai echoing from the coconut grove in front of them. Suddenly, Japanese came pouring over the shallow river to their front, and the Marines began pouring into them with machine gun and rifle fire. Many of the Japanese got tangled in barbed wire, and many others ripped to shreds by accurate and devastating machine gun fire. Within minutes, mortar and artillery fire began pummeling the Japanese assembly areas on the far side of the river, tearing through the Japanese left flank. Despite all of this deadly effort, quite a few Japanese made it to the Marines' lines, where they engaged with fixed bayonets. The battle became a tumult of steel meeting steel and plunging into flesh. Every man's world shrunk down to his foxhole and the jungle immediately around him. This continued for hours until dawn, when the men could begin to get an appreciation for the broader situation. The back of the Achiki detachment had been broken and they were fleeing. Some ran into the jungle, where they were met by the first marines, who were clearing from the inland toward the shore. Others made for the ocean, where they attempted to swim back to friendly lines, but instead retreated to marine marksmanship, their bobbing heads making for a true test of a rifleman's accuracy. Over the course of the day on the 21st, the marines surveyed the battlefield and found over 700 enemy bodies. The forward detachment of the Achikis had been absolutely devastated and ceased to exist as a formation. Even Colonel Ichiki lay among the dead, after killing himself when he knew the attack had failed. The Japanese had only managed to kill 34 marines and wound another 75. The Japanese commander's hubris had been laid bare for all to see. The regular and well-known pattern of Japanese battle had already emerged. Not just at the tactical level, with ineffective and suicidal bonsai charges, but at the operational level as well. The Japanese had the men, ships, guns, and airplanes to retake Guadalcanal as soon as the Marines landed, but inexplicably, they never took it. Where their allies, the Germans, had developed and perfected the concept of the Schwerpunkt, or decisive point, where a commander must concentrate his forces and strike with a purpose, the Japanese army seemed to have never developed this concept at all. Due to this conceptual failure, the Japanese army, unlike the Japanese navy, often attacked piecemeal, as the Ichiki detachment did with their advance guard. After their first defeat, the Japanese would insert the rest of the force, but would not supplement it because they baselessly assumed that there were fewer marines on the island than there actually were, but also because they still thought the Americans were soft and weak. Lastly, the Japanese habitually underreported defeats and setbacks to superiors and overreported success. Thus, the Japanese high command never really knew what was going on. The abject failure of the Achiki detachment was simply reported as a not entirely successful engagement. A lie of that magnitude would get the commander sacked in any normal functioning military, but the Japanese military 
for all its technological advancement and professionalism, was caught up in the imperial racial cult that demanded superiority and fealty to the emperor. To report the defeat accurately would be to destroy the illusion the cult was actively curating. At sea, however, the Japanese did not apply themselves piecemeal. Escorting the various small Japanese land formations were flotillas of powerful ships, three carriers with the entire combined air fleet, three battleships, nine cruisers, 13 destroyers, 36 submarines, and various other support vessels were assigned to the defeat of Allied forces in the Solomon Islands. Though impressive, this force was by no means stealthy. The Australian Coast Watchers and American Scout Planes spotted it as soon as it was en route, providing Admiral Gormley plenty of advance notice on what Japanese intentions were. Gormley, commander of the South Pacific area, so the intermediate between Fletcher and Nimitz, instructed Fletcher to meet and repel the Japanese invasion force. Unfortunately, due to bad intelligence, Fletcher mistakenly believed the Japanese were still in the vicinity of Truk, a thousand miles northwest of Guadalcanal, and allowed the carrier Wasp to leave the main fleet to refuel. Without Wasp, the Battle of the Eastern Solomons would be a much more fair fight. Chuichi Nagumo's fleet carriers Zyukaku and Shokaku, and his light carrier Ryujo, against Fletcher's Enterprise and Saratoga. Once again, the Japanese would use their light carrier as bait to lure in the bulk of the American air fleet, then strike at the main body after its combat power had been thrown at the smaller carrier. On August 25th, that's exactly what happened. The Ryujo was spotted 280 miles northwest of Fletcher's fleet, and the American air arm was dispatched to attack it. The attack was successful, and the Ryujo sunk. But while the strike force was away, Nugumo was able to find the Enterprise and Saratoga and launch strikes of his own. This time, the Americans were ready. 51 Wildcat carrier fighters were circling overhead in three layers, waiting for the Japanese bombers. They repelled most of the enemy, but about 24 Japanese aircraft got through and struck the Enterprise with a staccato of bombs, three of which got through. 74 men died in the blasts and ensuing fires, but thanks to ever-improving damage control techniques, the ship was saved. The Saratoga was unscathed, but the battleship North Carolina suffered superficial damage while fending off enemy attackers with her AA guns. After driving off the first Japanese wave and losing 17 aircraft, Fletcher decided he didn't want to wait around for the second wave, and withdrew his force. Though Nagumo sent his carriers to try and re-establish contact, they never found Fletcher. The first phase of the Battle of the Eastern Solomons was over, with a moderate American victory. The next day, Marine, Army Air Corps, and Navy ground-based aircraft would continue the battle. Undeterred by the day's action, the Japanese invasion force continued south toward Guadalcanal. On August 25th, the Marine Air Arm, based at Henderson, now named the Cactus Air Force, led the attack on the Japanese fleet. They attacked the cruiser Jinsu, flagship of Admiral Raizo Tanaka, with dauntless dive bombers and landed a bomb right in her forward deck. This didn't destroy her, but it sent her limping away in flames, removing her from the equation. Following this, the flyers, including B-17 flying fortresses, attacked the Japanese transports, sinking two of them and a destroyer. This second attack did deter the Japanese. Rather than continue, they turned away and debarked the troops in the Shortland Islands just south of Bougainville, at the top of the slot 350 miles northwest. This by no means meant that the Marines on the island were safe though. Beginning on August 24th, the island came under heavy aerial attack. That day, the Cactus Air Force shot down 11 Zeros and 10 bombers, 
while only losing three aircraft of their own. The fighting would continue like that for weeks, averaging about seven kills for every marine plane lost. The Cactus Air Force was probably a fitting name for them, as they were a prickly bunch. Unlike most aerial warriors, who wake in relatively comfortable beds, eat warm breakfasts, then fly into the sky to joust with their enemies, then go home and do the same the next day, the Cactus Air Force lived just like the infantrymen who surrounded them. They ate the same mealy rice and oily black coffee. They had to lay awake at night while the Japanese circled overhead for hours with the express purpose of keeping them awake until they dropped their bombs, only to be replaced by the next tormentor. This continued until September, when the next wave of Japanese ground forces arrived. In the meantime, since taking Tulagi, the men there had been transferred back to Guadalcanal to shore up the defenses of Henderson Field, including the Raider Battalion under Red Mike Edson. They had been assigned to the pivotal ridge that overlooked the airfield itself. It was just in time, too. Aerial attack and naval bombardment on Henderson Field had been increasing, and Major General Kiyotaki Kawaguchi's men were ashore preparing an assault. Not only this, but the local population was streaming into the marine perimeter to escape the Japanese, reporting that they had been pressed into hard labor, and that the local Catholic mission had been ransacked, the missionaries murdered. The raiders had also discovered a large Japanese cache when they landed on the island, where they captured and destroyed some Japanese field guns. General Vandegrift knew something was coming, he just had no way of knowing exactly when it would arrive. On September 11th, some relief came in the form of 24 Navy fighters to supplement the Cactus Air Force, which had dwindled down to just 11 aircraft. That day, and the next, there was heavy fighting in the skies above Henderson Field, as the men below dug foxholes and strung barbed wire to prepare for the Japanese offensive. At 9 o'clock that night, a single green flare dropped from a Japanese aircraft, followed 30 minutes later by a salvo from the cruiser and destroyers parked offshore. Once the bombardment was complete, a rocket came hurling in from the south toward the soon-to-be-dubbed Bloody Ridge. Suddenly, there were bright bursts of flares in the air, illuminating Japanese silhouettes. Kawaguchi's men came streaming toward the ridge, chanting, U.S. Marines be dead tomorrow, as they advanced. They overwhelmed the stretched defenses of the raiders along the ridge. They simply couldn't hold back the overwhelming tide of Japanese soldiers. The Japanese were unable to capitalize on their advantage, though. Kawaguchi's men were unable to decisively exploit their gains, and instead devolved as before into hundreds of individual engagements lost in the jungle. The Japanese preferred night attacks because they believed it gave them a psychological advantage, and that it negated American firepower superiority, but it also led to disorganization, where organized exploitation was necessary for victory. So when dawn broke the next day, the Japanese had to surrender their gains to fall back on their assembly areas to reorganize. The Marines attempted a counterattack, but there was nothing for it. They reoccupied their positions along the ridge, now significantly weaker than they had been the night before. General Vandegrift had sent the division's reserve to reinforce the raiders, but due to the aerial attack that began that morning, the reinforcements didn't arrive until the evening of the 12th and had no time to prepare even a hasty defensive position before the night's battle. As the sun set, 400 marine raiders occupied their foxholes, waiting for the 4,000 Japanese across from them to attack again. This time, the attack began earlier. Kawaguchi was eager to claim victory. At 6.30 p.m., Japanese smoke rounds filled the air with their impenetrable fog. Through the haze, Japanese came rushing toward the marines, outnumbered 10 to 1. Once again, the battle devolved into individual engagements. One machine gun crew taking on a whole squad or even platoon of Japanese, fending off their bayonets with machine gun fire, 
that turned their barrels red hot. Marine company and battalion leadership managed to maintain control of their formations, though. After being initially driven back, they reorganized and counterattacked, retaking the positions they had lost only an hour earlier. It was their leadership under fire that saved the day, or the night, rather. The Japanese immediately lost all organization, command, and control as soon as they entered the fray, so when they were hit with organized counterattacks, it not only shocked them, but dispirited them. Decisive and accurate indirect fire from the Marines disorganized them even more. As they tried to advance, Red Mike brought his artillery and mortar fire closer and closer to his own lines. To escape it, the Japanese dove into American foxholes where they were knifed and clubbed to death. Unable to take ground, the Japanese fell back and reorganized themselves for another, final assault. Their inability to keep silent gave them away, though. When, at two in the morning, they launched their last desperate bid to take the ridge, the Marines already had their guns pointed right at them and mowed them down with unyielding streams of lead. At 2.30 in the morning, Colonel Red Mike Edson radioed back to division headquarters. We can hold. As dawn broke, the Marines fanned out across the battlefield, proclaiming their own dead, searching bodies, and claiming souvenirs. Some dead Japanese had a gold tooth to be plucked. Others held booby trap grenades. Bloody Ridge was the largest engagement that night, but not the only one. The Japanese attacked along the Tanaru River, and the Matanikau, as well, and a few infiltrated all the way back to the division command post. They had all failed, though. In total, the Marines suffered 144 casualties, 40 dead and 104 wounded. The Japanese lost far more. Almost 1,000 dead Japanese were left behind, though the survivors hardly fared any better. They had a four-day trek back through the jungle to their supply areas, which they were completely unprepared for. There was no medical equipment and no food or water except that which they carried with them. This was by no means the end of the Battle of Guadalcanal, however. The Marines had really just won the first game of the series and established themselves on the island. Months of bitter fighting and survival lay ahead. Following the Battle of Bloody Ridge, more Marines would begin arriving on Guadalcanal, but to get there, they had to brave the idyllic waters of the Coral Sea between Guadalcanal and Espiritu Santo in the New Hebrides chain, which came to be known as Torpedo Junction, after the popular swing tune, Tuxedo Junction. The first time the 7th Marines tried to get through on their transports, Japanese scout planes were spotted and the transports turned back. The Japanese scout planes did not spook the fleet proper, however, and a school of Japanese submarines fell on the North Carolina, Wasp, and Hornet, and all of their accompanying cruisers, destroyers, and support vessels. Japanese fish struck home and damaged the North Carolina, which was forced to leave the fleet for repairs. The Wasp was struck by three torpedoes and sunk. By September 15th, the fleet was down a carrier and a battleship, and the Japanese celebrated the victory back home in the islands. They also celebrated their victory on land. Even General Hatukake on Rabul thought the Battle of Bloody Ridge had been a Japanese victory somehow. He intended to capitalize on the work of the Kawaguchis and send the 20,000-strong Sendai Division to finish their work. By now, word of American proficiency in battle had made its way through the Japanese ranks. In familiar Japanese fashion, however, their opinion of the U.S. Marine went from one extreme to another. They no longer considered their foes effeminate, coddled, and weak, but instead believed them to be bloodthirsty savages, pressed into service from jails and asylums. They thought they drank blood, hacked off limbs, impaled their enemies, and ground their bodies into the earth. 
I suppose you can see where some of this came from. The marines did scavenge among the dead for valuables, sometimes pulling teeth or cutting off fingers for jewelry, and they did push the Japanese dead bodies into mass graves. Not of any kind of barbaric malice, however, but simply because having hundreds of dead bodies rotting in the hot tropical sun was incredibly unsanitary, and they simply didn't have the time to sort through and bury their enemies individually. By September 18th, the American transports tried to run the gauntlet of Torpedo Junction again, and this time succeeded. After the arrival of the 7th Marines, there were now 22,000 Americans on the island, including the already famous Lieutenant Colonel Chesty Puller, and the soon-to-be-famous Sergeant John Bazalone. Chesty Puller, so named for his huge ribcage that was said to repel bullets, had earned his reputation in the interwar years fighting in Nicaragua and Haiti, where he had received his first two Navy crosses. Puller was the prototypical Marine. He was foul-mouthed, tough, and loved a good fight. He said to have asked, the first time he was shown a flamethrower, where does the bayonet go? That's the kind of man he was. With a whole extra regiment now inside his perimeter, General Vandergrift set about reinforcing that perimeter. Whereas before their arrival, he could really only defend a continuous line along the shore in the Tanaro River, he now had the men to cover his whole perimeter. The line was thin, and there was hardly any reserve, but to mitigate this, he set his men into building a veritable fortress in the jungle. For at least a hundred yards to their front, the men cleared the jungle, creating nice wide fields of fire. They dug entrenchments for themselves, and used the felled trees to create fighting positions and veritable bunkers to protect them from both direct and indirect fire. After building their bunkers, they planted grass and shrubs on top of them to make them appear to be little more than small hillocks. They then strung thousands of yards of barbed wire to encircle their entire perimeter. The artillery observers walked the engagement areas and marked coordinates for all the likely assembly areas and avenues of approach so that the guns could be pre-registered. They mined and booby-trapped the approaches as well to cause as much mischief as possible before ever even engaging the enemy directly. In this way, the marines hacked and slashed at the jungle with pickaxes, machetes, shovels, and bulldozers until they had transformed the landscape into something else entirely. Upon witnessing this, the Japanese complained that the marines were not real jungle fighters because they always cut the jungle down. Facing down against the 1st Marine Division was the aforementioned Sendai Division. They were the second division raised by the Maiji Emperor and considered themselves the Emperor's personal division. Originally recruited from the town of Sendai, north of Tokyo, they had fought in the First Sino-Japanese War in 1894, the Russo-Japanese War, and had participated in the Rape of Nanking, as well as the Battle of Namenhan against the Soviet Union. This was no rabble of conscripts. These were battle-tested Japanese regulars. Though many of them were conscripts, they took their sacred task seriously. When marshaled into the army, they received their rifles like samurai receiving their swords, with all of the ceremony and solemnity. Together, they chanted, Remember that death is lighter than a feather, but that duty is heavier than a mountain. These would be the men who inflicted on the 1st Marine Division their first defeat. At First Commonwealth Bank, we understand that many of today's businesses are facing uncertain times. And that means there's no more important time for having the right financial partner behind you. 
a partner with the resources and experience to help take care of your business, an SBA preferred lender who can see what others may not and do what others cannot. If you're ready to talk with a financial partner who can help your business today and into the future, there's no better time to talk with us. First Commonwealth Bank, member FDIC. At First Commonwealth Bank, we understand that many of today's businesses are facing uncertain times. And that means there's no more important time for having the right financial partner behind you. A partner with the resources and experience to help take care of your business. An SBA preferred lender who can see what others may not and do what others cannot. If you're ready to talk with a financial partner who can help your business today and into the future, there's no better time to talk with us. First Commonwealth Bank, member FDIC.